while we are getting set up for banter, I'll give you a bit of background to why we're doing this. The book of Jeremiah, has anyone actually read it? Yes. It's a pretty complex book. In fact, some scholars say it's the most complex book in the Bible. And the reason for that is it's actually out of chronological order. It's just sort of random prophecies just shoved in here, there, and everywhere. There's lots of kings. There's lots of sort of political maneuverings. And so to understand the book, we have to understand the historical context. And rather than me talking to you for 20 minutes, actually probably drag out closer to 40 to understand that, I thought, why don't we have a conversation? Hopefully you're more forgiving of us if we go over time, if we're having a conversation. And you might stay a little bit more engaged with that. So We won't go too over time. No, no, not too over time. So, and if you've never listened to the podcast, well, this is a little sample of how banter goes. All right. Mitch, how you doing, mate? Good, Murray. How are you? Good. We've got, like, so many more people than usually just you and me hiding up in the auditorium. Yeah, I think no one walks in halfway through the recording. I know. We are, it's like a, a bit of a weekly threat we have is we either go in Murray and Lou's office or we hide up in the auditorium and... Yeah, without fail, Craig will wander in and like try to open the door, and we're like kind of like this, like yeah. recording. I like to pretend we're like you know the third century persecuted church, like <laughs> hiding upstairs, you know. But so I think that a lot of people are probably asking Mitch, mm. we're going to be starting this Jeremiah series. What is it about the book of Jeremiah that you felt our church needs to be looking at mm. and meditating on in this season? Well, actually, Jeremiah was a big part of why we went with a theme for steadfast. Uh, so, but it was about this time last year, was listening to the book repeatedly, and particularly Jeremiah's laments and his reflections on being thrown into the world and just the calling on his life. It's a horrific calling. He just suffers tremendously. And I suppose for someone in ministry, I don't have suffered as much as Jeremiah, or just for people who are suffering, it actually gives us license to really throw out our complaints to God he uses some very, very coarse language to describe how he feels about God's calling on his life. Um, yeah, he pretty much uses the word rape to describe how he's enticed him into ministry. And so what we get there is this man who remains absolutely steadfast in his calling. He doesn't deviate from the message, which is Jerusalem's going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. But inside, he's wrestling tremendously. And I think for all of us who uh, go, go, are going through suffering, have experienced suffering or will go through suffering, we can give us that license to cry out to God in the same way Jeremiah did, but remain steadfast. Remain Well, we have to remain faithful to God's calling our life. We must remain faithful to the teachings of the Bible and not deviate. So I'm very, very excited to be unpacking this Love book. Um, so this week, actually, the, the title there is Politics. Oh, who's excited about ancient Near Eastern politics? Oh, look, I see some hands at yeah. the back. AJ loves yes. a little ancient Near Eastern <laughs> politics. He won't shut up about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> but unfortunately, the reality is, is Jeremiah was written in a time of a political crisis. And so you have to understand some of these politics of the day. And if you don't remember anything from this morning, I want you to remember one thing. 587 BC. Let's all say it together. 587 BC. 587 BC was the time when Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonians. Um, There's an Old Testament commentator called Walter Brueggemann. He calls it the 9-11 of Israel's history. So it's a moment when their identity is completely 
uprooted. So 587 BC, it comes to represent this enormous change in life as you as the people knew it. Yeah, I think that's a helpful kind of comparison. Well, should we go into the Bible Project video that'll probably do most of the work for us anyway? Yes. Let's go into it. The book of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was an Israelite priest who lived and worked in Jerusalem during the final decades of the kingdom of southern Judah. He was called as a prophet to warn Israel about the severe consequences of breaking their covenant with God through their idolatry and injustice, and he even predicted that the empire of Babylon would come as God's servant to bring this judgment on Israel by destroying Jerusalem taking the people into exile. And sadly, his words became reality. Jeremiah lived through the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and witnessed the exile personally. Now, this book came into existence in a really interesting way. Chapter 36 tells us that after 20 years of Jeremiah's preaching in Jerusalem, God called him to collect all of his sermons and poems and essays and commit them to writing, which Jeremiah did by employing a scribe named Baruch, who wrote down and compiled all of this material into a scroll. Now, Baruch also gathered lots of stories about Jeremiah, and he linked all the pieces together. And so this is why the book reads like an anthology, a collection of collections. It's all been arranged to present this prophet as a messenger of God's justice and grace. So the book begins with God calling Jeremiah to be a prophet, and he's given a dual vocation. He will be a prophet to Israel, but also to the nations. And his words will both uproot and tear down, but also plant and build up. In other words, he's going to accuse Israel and warn them of God's coming judgment, but he also has a message of hope for the future. Now, this opening perfectly summarizes the first large section, chapters 1 to 24. It's a collection of Jeremiah's writings from before the exile. And the core idea here is that Israel has broken the covenant with God and violated all the terms of the agreement they made that are written in the Torah. And in a number of ways, they've adopted the worship of all kinds of Canaanite gods, building idol shrines all over the land. And Jeremiah develops the metaphor of idolatry as adultery and uses the language of prostitution, promiscuity, unfaithfulness to describe how Israel has given their allegiance to other gods. Jeremiah also repeatedly accuses Israel's leaders. The priests, the kings, the other prophets have all become corrupt. They've abandoned the Torah and the covenant, which has led to a tragic result, rampant social injustice. The most vulnerable people in Israelite communities, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, were all being taken advantage of in clear violation of the laws of the Torah, and Israel's leaders didn't even seem to care. So a classic place where all of these ideas come together is in chapter 7. It's called Jeremiah's Temple Sermon. The Israelites are coming to worship their God in the temple as if everything is just fine, but outside the temple they are worshiping other gods, and some were even adopting the horrifying Canaanite practice of child sacrifice. And so Jeremiah makes his very unpopular announcement. The God of Israel is coming in judgment. He's going to destroy his own temple and punish Israel by sending an enemy from the north. This is an army that God would allow to conquer Jerusalem, and as you read on, you discover he's talking about the great empire of Babylon. And so this all leads up to a transition in chapter 25. Israel hasn't turned back to their God, and so in the first year of Babylon's new king, Nebuchadnezzar, God tells Jeremiah to announce that the Babylonian armies are headed for Israel and all of its neighbors to conquer them and take them into exile for 70 years. He compares Babylon to a cup of wine filled to the brim with God's just anger at all of Israel's injustice and idolatry, and God will make Israel and the nations drink from this cup. 
Now, this chapter is key to the book's design because everything that follows is going to focus on Babylon's coming attack, first on Israel in chapters 26 to 45, and then on the other nations in chapters 46 to 51. The section about Israel first contains stories about how Jeremiah begged Israel to turn back, how he warned them right up to the last minute, but the leaders of Israel kept rejecting him. The section concludes with a large collection of stories about how Jerusalem was under siege and eventually destroyed by Babylon and about how Jeremiah was persecuted all through that time and eventually kidnapped and taken against his will to Egypt by a group of Israelite rebels. Now, right here in the middle, in between all of these dark stories of disaster and judgment, is a collection of Jeremiah's messages of hope for Israel's future. So he picks up on Moses' prediction that after Israel had broken the covenant and gone into exile, see Deuteronomy 30, God would not abandon his people. Rather, he would renew his covenant with them and transform their hearts. Jeremiah develops this promise, and he says that God is going to one day inscribe the laws of the Torah, not on tablets, but rather on the hearts of his own people. He's going to heal their rebellion so that they can truly one day love and follow him fully. And so one day, Israel will return back to the land, and the Messiah from the line of David is going to come, and that's when all nations will come to recognize Israel's God as the true God. So these chapters are showing that despite Israel's apostasy, God is not going to let Israel's sin get the final word. Rather, his own faithfulness will bring about the fulfillment of his promises no matter what. After this, we find the large collection of poems about how God is going to use Babylon to judge the nations around Israel. So Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Edom, Ammon, Damascus, Hazor. But then, surprisingly, the longest poems are saved for last, and they're about God's coming judgment on Babylon itself. So although God used this nation to execute his justice, God doesn't endorse their violence and idolatry. And so Babylon, too, will come under the standard of God's justice. And so Jeremiah denounces this nation's pride and injustice as well. Now, Babylon is larger than life in these poems, and it reminds us of the image of Babylon all the way back from Genesis chapter 11. Babylon has become the archetypal rebellious nation. In their glorification of wealth and war, God's going to give this nation over over to its own destruction. The book concludes with a story taken from the end of the book of 2 Kings. It tells about Babylon's final attack on Jerusalem, how they destroyed the city walls and burned the temple and took the people into exile. The story shows how Jeremiah's warnings of judgment from chapters 1 through 24 were fulfilled. But then the chapter ends with a short story about the captive Israelite king Jehoiakim. He's heir to the line of David. And the king of Babylonian releases him from prison and shows him favor by inviting him to eat at the royal table for the rest of his life. And the book ends. So it's a little glimmer of hope. And this recalls Jeremiah's promises of hope from chapters 30 to 33. God hasn't abandoned his people or the promise of a future coming king from David's line. And so while this book contains a huge amount of warning and judgment, the final words conclude with a note of hope for the future. And that's what the book of Jeremiah is all about. All right, so dense but good. Feel free to check that out online if you want to. There's a lot in there. It's pretty kind of dense. But um, yeah, definitely go check out on YouTube, Jeremiah Bible Project Overview. It'll come straight up. They're definitely super helpful videos, and I've watched that quite a few times. I feel like each time i like able to like get, get something, something new. Extra. Yeah. But I think one thing that came out of that video, which is really interesting, is that unlike, say, a Genesis, you know, pretty much all the way to Two Kings and Beyond, 
um, that are chronological historical accounts. Mm -hmm. Jeremiah is historical, but its structure isn't chronological all the time. Do you want to speak about that? So the order is what they call thematic. It's built into themes. And so the, the book, so as you read the book, you're not reading it in order. And this is why it's important to kind of go through the stuff we're about to go through with different kings and different rulers of Jerusalem. So you understand the timeline. You jump from just before the exile is about to happen to a few years prior. So without further ado, let's check out let, some ancient world leaders. Yeah. So next slide. Oh, that, that was a bit of a disappointment. <laughs> yeah, here we go. So here are the key world leaders in that time. So you've got Egypt and Babylon. And the guy in the middle, we're probably pretty familiar with him, Nebuchadnezzar II. Well, he's not called the second in the Bible, but Nebuchadnezzar, he's the one that Daniel interacts with. He's the, we, we, yeah, he's the one that Jeremiah is prophesying about a lot. Nebuchadnezzar was the big dog of that day in the 6th century. Nebuchadnezzar, he was the man. Now, on the left, we have Pharaoh Necho II. Now, Necho, Necho, however you want to say it, he was trying to elevate Egypt back to its original status. He wants Egypt to become the new world power. It failed a lot because Nebuchadnezzar, he's the big dog. And then after Necho, we have Pharaoh Hophra. And he also, too, was trying to make Egypt a world power again and just couldn't compete with the might of Babylon. And while these three world leaders are important is, as the video said, the army from the north, the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, he is Yahweh's servant. It's interesting language, just fascinating language to describe an evil king. He's the one that's going to bring judgment upon um, Jerusalem. Now, the problem with the guys on our left and right, Necho and Hophra, is they become false security, basically. Um, Egypt, in many ways, it, it functions like it did in the book of um, Genesis. People fly, go down there when there's problems. Um, the nation of Jerusalem tries to do that too. They try to look to Egypt to rescue them from Babylon. And God's saying, no, 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 no. Babylon is my chosen instrument. Do not go down to Egypt. So, with the next slide, we're going to go through some kings Oh, there is a lot of J's here. So if you actually have your Bibles or your phone, actually can turn to 2 Kings chapter 23. This can be a bit of just some helpful references because it can be a bit confusing what we're going to go through here. But the first king is a guy called Josiah. Now, when Jeremiah was called as a child, uh, it was about, uh, Josiah started reigning about 640 BC. Jeremiah's called about 627, so about 13 years into Josiah's reign. Josiah, he is brilliant. And he couldn't ask for a better king. He finds the book of Deuteronomy. He leads this reformation across Jerusalem. The nation starts worshipping Yahweh as they're supposed to. In fact, it's described there was no king like Josiah. If you lived in the time of Josiah, man, life was fantastic. But, there's always a but here. <laughs> Josiah does something interesting, which no one's really too sure why so with um the babylonian empire growing there was another world leader at the time assyria so as babylon's growing assyria is declining and so egypt's a bit scared of babylon's rising so egypt makes an alliance with assyria and actually if we flick to the next slide thanks keith see there's a map here 
Now look smack bang in the middle, Josiah's kingdom. So Necho decides he's going to go march through um, Judah to fight against the Babylonians to stop their rise. Now Josiah says, no, 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 no. You are not coming into my territory, Necho. And they have this big battle at the battle at um, Megiddo and Josiah is killed. And you're like, oh, okay. And you can read, if you read in, I have the reference here, where is it? Two Chronicles. Oh, two Chronicles 35, it ha- kind of extends on that account of Josiah's death. So with the death of Josiah, if you want to go just back to the previous slide, we have Josiah's second son called Jehoiaz. He becomes king for three months. Now, this is the beginning of the end. And what's important with reading Jeremiah, we start to see these political events, which just seem like we've got stupid kings who are ruling and reigning, actually part of God's hand to destroy, ensure the destruction of Jerusalem. So this is like an unraveling. That's what I love about Jeremiah. It's a, politi- it's a theological commentary on political events. And so Jehoiaz, he's there for three months, and Necho finds out, he's like, he's not too happy about this. So he comes in, and he puts um, Jehoiaz in chains, ships him off to Egypt, and he puts in another son of Josiah, a guy called Eliakim, but he changes his name to Jehoiakim. Now, Jehoiakim is also very, very wicked. And in fact, a lot of Je- um, Jeremiah's prophecies are aimed directly at Jehoiakim because he's just so wicked. And what Necho did was he forced this levy, it's like a tribute, to be paid to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem there is paying this tribute to Necho and to Egypt. And Jehoiakim, he decides one day, you know what? I'm going to change my allegiance. I'm going to change my allegiance to Babylon. And the reason for that is, is Nebuchadnezzar comes in and invades Jerusalem. It's all part of this punishment that God was leading to. And so now you can see the tug of war, tug of war between Babylon, Egypt, Babylon, Egypt. Yeah. Would we be able to just get that, that map slide up again? Because it is something which is really fascinating yeah. just from a geographical yeah. standpoint that the sort of, you know, city of Jerusalem is right in the middle of this sort of war between yeah. Egypt and either Assyria or Babylon, yeah. whoever at any point is up in the north. And it does end up mean that Jerusalem as a city is sort of a bit of a pawn in this big battle between these greater powers. Yeah. And it creates a lot of instability, both mm. politically, but also just from a safety point yeah. of view, um, when they are kind of being used as a pawn in this way. It creates a very unique dynamic for it Jerusalem. Does. And it's yeah. kind of understandable why suddenly when we start to understand all these different leaders, all these different kings throughout this period, that it really is like the the, the center point, the middle of the bullseye of Mm. this war going on between Mm. either Assyria and Egypt earlier on and then Babylon and Egypt later on. It's like some so critical to understanding, I think, Jeremiah. Yeah. And that's why I said this is why I hope you're forgiving us for doing it this conversational way because it is a lot to digest, but so important to understanding the message of Jeremiah. Uh, Anyway, at one point... Egypt and Babylon have this big battle to decide who's going to be the Mac winner. Who's going to be the big winner? And Babylon loses. And so Jehoiakim, he decides, actually, I'm going to change my allegiance back to Egypt. I'm going to look for Egypt to protect me. And Nebuchadnezzar, he licks his wounds, comes back, defeats Necho, and then goes, Oi, you, Jehoiakim, you are a dead man. He laid siege around Jerusalem. And then during that siege, and if you can imagine siege, you're running out of food, running out of water, people are starving, people are dying. 
Jehoiakim actually dies halfway through the siege, and some people suspect that he was probably assassinated. So, and if we jump forward to the next slide, we see after Jehoiakim's death, oh yeah, I forgot about this. Um, oh, I'll, I'll keep going, I'll unpack this. So after Jehoiakim's death, Jehoiachin, oh, it's confusing, Jehoiakim, made it easier for uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, his son is put in power. And so here I made a reference. Um, oh, yeah, well, if you go back one more slide, thanks, Keith. Yeah, so here, um, Jeremiah 42. So this is actually to ground Jeremiah's prophecies in sort of historical reality. And so this is actually a prophecy against Hophra. And I won't read it out, but you can look at this later and look at Jeremiah 42. It's when Jeremiah is about to be sent down to Egypt after um, the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem, and read here and go, oh, this is actually describing historical events. You can go to Wikipedia and Google these kings and find out about the destruction of Necho and Hophra, and Jeremiah backs this all up. So, I think that text that you have in bold there is, is kind of a nice little summary. If you're yeah. determined to go to Egypt and you do go to settle there, then the sword you fear will overtake you there, and the famine you dread will follow you into Egypt, and there you will die. Indeed, all who are determined to go to Egypt to settle there will die by the sword, famine and plague. Not one of them will survive or escape the disaster I will bring on them. So this is a prophecy that Jeremiah mm. is speaking to his people at his time, saying, hey, if you flee to Egypt, if you run away, it's not going to turn out well for you, no, essentially, no. which obviously is then fulfilled. Yeah, <laughs> this is, we know that happened historically. So that's just a cool little fun fact for you to look at at home. And so, where were we? Oh, back to the kings. Oof. I know. We're up to Jehoiachin. Anyway, Jehoiachin, after three months of ruling, Nebuchadnezzar smashes through the walls and he does the first, he commits the first exile. So this is where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get sent off to Babylon and Jehoiachin is taken away. The prophet Ezekiel goes there. And so this is the year 597. So we've got 10 years left till the end of Jerusalem. And so Nebuchadnezzar puts in um, a guy called Zedekiah, and he is the uncle of um, Jehoiakim. Um, and this guy is just another very, very wicked king. And essentially, have a guess what he does here. It says there on the screen, he's paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. And then Zedekiah goes, you know what? I'm going to change back my allegiance to Egypt. Perhaps Egypt can protect us. And if you read the rest of Kings, we all know what happens. Nebuchadnezzar comes down, laid siege to the city, and it's described in quite horrific detail what the people go through. And if you read Ezekiel, Ezekiel's around that time too, Jeremiah, you just get an insight into conditions of life in Jerusalem. It's absolutely horrific. And in 587 BC, the walls are destroyed, the Babylonians come in, everything is just razed to the ground temple is gone the palace is gone the city is wiped away only the poor of the poor uh, remain and then what um nebuchadnezzar does is he puts in a governor over the land a guy called Je jedahali uh, that's how you pronounce it, it with confidence, yeah yeah, know, yeah, you know? yeah sure. and he's put as, as a governor over the people and then he is assassinated so i mean this stuff's just wild it's like game of thrones sort of thing is going on here and then the people try to flee to egypt and jeremiah is actually forced to go down that was that prophecy i had there from jeremiah 42 mm. and so that's essentially kind of the world leaders yeah. around that time we've got hofra nebuchadnezzar neko josiah um jehoiaz jehoiakim jehoiachin 
Zedekiah. I think we've got an image of what the Babylonian Empire looked like once that sort of started to spread all the way down to Egypt there. So we kind of see that sort of happening Mm. and what that sort of starts to look like. But again, Jerusalem being right in the middle of of that. And then we actually have a prophecy here to describe the next slide about um, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians. And this is, I find this prophecy just fascinating because this is a wicked, wicked king. I've mentioned a few times, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, look, yeah, anyway, the book of Daniel portrays him a bit nicer. But at this point, this guy is just portrayed as the ultimate evil. And look what he's described as. Here, I've got it in bold there. It says here, now I'll, give, uh, now I'll give all your countries into the hands of my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I'll make even the wild animals subject to him. That's like Adam and Eve language. Adam and Eve are called to rule and subdue the animals, even the wild animals. Nebuchadnezzar is given this... Yeah, this, I just find it fascinating how God uses these wicked people to accomplish his purposes. Yeah, it'd kind of be like hearing that sort of Putin is being <laughs> used by God as his chosen instrument to bring, you mm. know, sort of punishment. It's something which for us, you know, when we're on the other side of that sort of political equation or, mm. you know, whoever, insert any sort of world leader who you might consider wants harm to maybe create harm to us or is on the other side of that political spectrum. Mm. The thought that God is working through that person as a chosen instrument in this moment, be unbeknownst to them, <laughs> um, is a pretty wild thought and something it, which, yeah, it is challenging for us. And I think it is challenging, very much so. And and that I guess is the book of Jeremiah, and that's why his prophecy is just so hated. All the false prophets, they're going, no, 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 no. So after that first exile in 597, when Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Bendigo were sent to Babylon, they're all saying, no, it's only going to be a couple of years, just two years, three years. We're going to come back. God is going to restore us. There was this misguided belief that Jerusalem would always be protected. We are God's chosen people. We are covenant people. We can do whatever we want. And Jeremiah is saying, no, 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 you guys can't. Look back on that covenant that you hold to so strongly. Moses predicted there would be a time where you would be exiled. You can't just do whatever you want and expect God not to get angry with it. And so Jeremiah is there literally a lone voice against everyone telling him that you're wrong. You're a false prophet. God isn't going to allow this city to be destroyed. Mm. And that's what I just find just amazing. That's what I said before. This is a theological commentary on political events. You can read um, 2 Kings 23, 25. It gives us just factual events of, you know, this king died. Nebuchadnezzar came in, laid the city down. Jeremiah unpacks that. And we just get a deeper insight into the mind of God and into the mind of someone that lived through these horrific events. So we've got a final slide, which literally just says, so what? (laughs) So what? (laughs) Which is probably what some people are thinking (laughs) right now. Why are we doing this? So what does this mean for us living in 21st century Sydney? How do these ideas, these stories, this, this biblical history, how does this apply to us in a practical way today? Yeah, well, the reality is we are living at the end of Western civilization. Like That's just uh, once upon a time, the British Empire ruled the world. That tiny little island controlled everything. The reality is that's, that's just not the case now. We are seeing the rise of China, India. This is now the Asian century. And particularly even in the Australian context, from a church point of view, the church that once held such, I guess, dominance and people who would go to church, go to Sunday school, that was sort of our cultural identity was Christian. That's no longer there. And so like the people in Jeremiah's day, we're seeing a crisis 
and a transition. The powers are starting to shift. And as Christians, that can leave us feel quite terrified. We can think, oh my goodness, leftist, woke culture is going to wipe us out. We're all going to be destroyed. And we kind of think, actually, God is in control of this. And that's what I love about Jeremiah. Is he's a man that lived through immense, immense change, who saw probably one of the best kings ever, mm. apart from King David, to just these absolute four losers of a kings and just seeing his city that was worshipping Yahweh just descend into just basically a Canaanite city where child worship, the child sacrifice was going on. He's seeing the rise of a new threat, Babylon. Um, seeing just these alliances form. And for us, it, it should give us comfort. Okay, maybe I don't understand what's going on. I don't have the mind of God like the prophet Jeremiah. But I know that if God's people went through this once and came through it, What's God going to do in this situation? What is God doing with the rise of China, the rise of India, the, the Asian century, as people call it? What's, what's happening with the shift, I guess, away from Australia being a, a Christian country? What is God doing in this? And instead of being fearful, it should actually, I guess in a sense, turn us to prayer mm. and turn us to go, okay, uh, not, not celebrating the horrible things that are happening, but just knowing that God is in control. I think perhaps we know it up here in our heads, but... Perhaps in our practices, we don't do that. And mm. I think, too, the other thing that's important is don't look to politics as your saviour. Mm, that's that's probably the biggest thing. And, and that's what the point I was trying to get across, where you see they shift all alliances from Babylon to Egypt, Egypt to Babylon, trying to find... It's, Ezekiel calls um, Egypt a broken reed. Mm. It's like, hey, man, if you lean on this thing, it's going to snap. It's pointless. And politics is the same doesn't matter which side of politics you're relying on for your hope, left or right wing, mm. whatever it might be. Um, the answer is ultimately God. And I think too, like the call of um, Nebuchadnezzar as Yahweh's servant, reminds us that perhaps God puts people in places that we wouldn't think are godly, mm. but he's using them for purposes we just couldn't imagine. So there's a bit of the, the so what question for us and I want to actually finish I don't have this verse on the screen but this is from Jeremiah 23 this in it's sandwiched in between all this judgment he gives us hope it says here this is Jeremiah 23 from verse 5 the days are coming declares the Lord when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land in his day Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteous saviour so then the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up from the land of the north and out of all the countries where he banished them, and they will live in their own land. Speaking about a day when a righteous branch will come, I'm sure there's, a, I guess, a fulfillment when the Israelites do come back from 70 years in captivity. But Jeremiah's talking about something deeper a greater release from exile, the release from sin and death. So we can hear about Jesus. And I guess we could look at it metaphorically. The land of the north is a place where sin and evil and injustice comes from. That's how the Bible presents the land of the north, and the land of the Babylonians. For us, we're freed from that. And that's what the kingdom of God is about. It's about removing evil, corrupt structures and bringing God's wise rule and reign. That's ultimately the message of Jeremiah points to, is God will bring in a new covenant, a new king, 
there will be peace in the land one day. Love it. Well, why don't you pray? I'll uh, pack up this very intricate set from banter (laughs) and we'll call the band back up. No worries. Yeah, Lord, we just give you thanks that we can, yeah, unpack your word and just the historical context behind that. And Lord, and see how in many ways history does repeat itself. But in that, in the rise and fall of empires, you are the one that is stable. You're the one that we have trust in, that we can have faith in and hope in. And ultimately, we know, Lord, that you will remove all pain, tears and suffering because you sent to us Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we just have this opportunity to unpack Jeremiah, Lord, may we, as we just get into the mind of that prophet as we just see his heart and just his anguish, Lord. May, Lord, we just understand that the calling on our life may not be quite like Jeremiah's, Lord, but each of us knows that feeling of pain and suffering and heartache. But, Lord, yet we still want to remain faithful to you. So I just pray your blessing upon us as we just go through this series. And may it just shape us and refine us and help us to reflect Jesus more and more. And this we pray in your Son's name. Amen.